ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello and welcome to The World Today. It is Thursday the 29th of February. I'm Sally Sara coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Today, spy scandal. A former Australian politician is accused of selling out to foreign interests. Are there enough checks and balances? And the Matildas qualify for the Paris Olympics. Can they go further than the World Cup and bring home a medal? They're filthy after getting fourth at the World Cup. They think they deserved a medal and I think all of Australia thinks that too. And we would love to see that uh, at the Olympics and such a great chance to do it with 12 teams. The nation's top spy chief has accused a former Australian politician of selling out their country, party and colleagues after being recruited by foreign spies. The dramatic revelation was made by Mike Burgess, the Director General of Australia's domestic intelligence agency ASIO, during a speech last night in Canberra. This morning, there are growing calls for the intelligence chief to publicly name the former politician. Alison Shaw reports. It was a bombshell disclosure from the nation's top intelligence chief. This politician sold out their country, party, former colleagues to advance the interests of a foreign regime. ASIO Director General Mike Burgess says several years ago, a former Australian politician was cultivated by an international spy ring. At one point, the former politician even proposed bringing a prime minister's family member into the spy's orbit. Fortunately, that plot did not go ahead, but others did. In his annual threat assessment speech, Mike Burgess says foreign interference over and above terrorism is now their principal security concern. The threat is now and the threat is deeper and broader than you might think. But his decision not to name the former MP has caused controversy. The former federal treasurer and former ambassador to the United States, Joe Hockey, is demanding for the identity to be revealed and says parliamentary privilege could be used to do so. I want to know who the traitor is. It besmirches everyone that has served their nation in the parliament, but what's more... It forces us to ask serious questions. Who is this person? Did we work with them in the parliament? Uh, Did they ever approach us about an issue? What did we discuss with them? Uh, What did they do with that information? Uh, It's not good enough to be in the hold of the intelligence agencies, they need to let everyone know. Mr Hockey says not naming the individual affects the reputation of everyone in public life. Our closest allies in in what's known as the Five Eyes will be appalled at this and it potentially has a huge impact on the reputation of Australian members of parliament. Shadow Foreign Minister Simon Birmingham has called on the government to be more transparent. The Home Affairs Minister should make a statement to the House providing as much detail as is possible uh, to provide clarity around this uh, and to avoid that type of smear against all serving for all former politicians. Others, like Shadow Minister for Home Affairs James Patterson, say the decision not to name the former politician is understandable. 
I have a fair idea who it is, but I, I won't publicly speculate. The conduct occurred before the passage of the Espionage and Foreign Interference legislation in 2018, which means they couldn't be charged for their offences because it was not retrospective. Uh, given that, I think it would be unfair to name someone publicly and you'd obviously be running a very serious defamation risk if you did so. He says it's unfortunate the individual won't face legal consequences. I think that is uh, a regret. I think it would be very powerful and important if someone has betrayed their country, particularly someone who has the honour of representing their country in the past. Parliament, uh, that they face legal consequences and very serious ones for that. The question over why charges weren't laid at the time has raised some eyebrows. Michael Shoebridge is the founder of Strategic Analysis Australia, a defence and security focused think tank. This is old-fashioned espionage and I think it's been a crime in Australia since 1914. Even though uh, Mr Burgess told us this happened some years ago before the espionage laws were strengthened, it still would have been a crime at the time and I can see no reason that there shouldn't be a prosecution. Treasurer Jim Chalmers has backed ASIO's decision not to name the individual, while Defence Minister Richard Miles says speculation over who it is isn't helpful. I think there's a whole range of reasons why um, individuals would not be named and, and that detail is not out there. So uh, I respect the decision that ASIO have made in, in, in relation to this. What I think is important here is to understand that for those of us who are involved in public administration, and that's politicians but not just politicians, um, there is a threat of foreign interference out there. That's Defence Minister Richard Miles ending that report from Alison Shaw. Well, currently there is no security vetting of federal government ministers, assistant ministers or parliamentary secretaries, even though many of them have access to highly sensitive documents and information. Rex Patrick is a former South Australian senator who campaigned for greater scrutiny. He says gaps in the system must be addressed. I'm not in any way surprised that a politician may have been engaged in assisting a foreign country or indeed spying for a foreign country. We have gaping holes in our transparency scheme in relation to foreign influence and interference and we also have no protections for classified information that is taken into the ministerial wing of Parliament House. We'll get to those issues in a moment. Do you think that this former politician should be named? This former politician needs to be named. The Prime Minister has the authority to disclose who this person is and there has to be consequence for someone who is engaged in an activity uh, which assists a foreign entity, particularly a politician. Let's have a look at this issue, particularly for uh, ministers, assistant ministers and parliamentary secretaries. So is it the case that they don't need to go through security vetting, even though in many cases they have access to extremely sensitive material? There are ministers inside Parliament House who on a daily basis are given access to highly secret information and yet they do not go through any form of security check. It's a case of one rule for officials and no rule for politicians. Why is that the case? Why has that happened? I don't understand why uh, this issue hasn't been rectified. There is a constitutional issue with having a security agent vet a politician so that they can serve in the parliament. But in this instance, we're referring to ministers. That is 
politicians who are also members of the executive. And in 2019, I put a bill before the parliament suggesting that the prime minister could request from the head of ASIO a security check that would be provided to him or her uh, such that they could make their own decision about whether or not it was appropriate to have some politician fill a minister's position. That was a way of avoiding having the executive directly controlling or directly vetting whether someone could be a minister, but putting the right information in the hands of the Prime Minister so that the Prime Minister could make a, de- a good decision as to whether or not someone should or should not sit in a ministerial position. So public servants, even sometimes at relatively low levels in the public service in in some departments, have to go through this security vetting process, but the ministers do not. We've had no security checks on those ministers at all. Yes, we have no security checks on those ministers and indeed there would be problems if our security agencies started looking into ministers. That's why we have to be very proactive to make sure that proper checks are done, ordered by the Prime Minister, dealt with by the Prime Minister. Do you think members of the public might be surprised about how few checks and balances there are, particularly on ministers, assistant ministers and and parliamentary secretaries? I think most people would be quite surprised that there are no security checks. Indeed, when I was in the parliament and this issue was being ventilated, very few people uh, were aware of that fact. Ministers, as a part of their normal function, have to be given access to classified and sensitive information. What we have at the moment is no checks at all, and that's totally unacceptable. That's former South Australian Senator Rex Patrick. You're listening to The World Today. Well, there's growing optimism that the Reserve Bank might cut interest rates sooner rather than later, given more signs that the economy is continuing to slow. Retail sales for the month of January have come in softer than expected, confirming that Australian consumers are increasingly cautious. For more, I'm joined by the ABC's senior business correspondent, Peter Ryan. Peter, what do these retail figures tell us about the economy and whether perhaps a recession is on the radar? Well, Sally, a bit of a mixed bag here. Retail sales for January came in slightly positive, up 1.1%, seasonally adjusted. 1.5% had been expected by some economists. Now, this is not stellar by any means, but it has been bouncing back from a negative reading in December when sales went backwards by 2.1%, but that was complicated by higher-than-expected spending in November from Black Friday sales, which are now part of the retail landscape. But spending in cafes, restaurants and takeaway food rose 1.3% after four consecutive monthly falls, boosted by big sporting events in January, uh, bumper crowds from the Australian Open Tennis, the Big Bash League, boosting catering services. But food retailing uh, went negative by 0.1% as shoppers trim back their supermarket budgets. But clothing, footwear, personal accessories up 2.4% in the biggest rise, Household goods 2.3%, even department store spending up 1.7%. So at least a a positive reading from the Bureau of Statistics, but at 1.1%, that retail spending is subdued or fragile at best, and the underlying trend is weak. So Peter, is it too early to start talking about possible interest rate cuts at all? 
Probably not just yet, Sally, but these retail figures do come off the back of a a January inflation update out yesterday, which stabilised at 3.4%, but this was lower than what economists had been expecting. So maybe, just maybe, the RBA might soon start considering when a rate cut discussion can be contemplated. We might get a better idea next Wednesday when the national accounts for the final quarter of last year are released. GDP or economic growth could come in flat may be negative. Treasurer Jim Chalmers has been managing expectations, hosing down worries about a recession, but at the very least he does see a weak reading. Treasury forecast that we put out in the mid-year budget update in December anticipated uh, the economy to continue to grow but really quite slowly and inevitably you know when you've got these higher interest rates in the system still the full effect of those still to be felt got all this global uncertainty, you've got conflicts in two parts of the world uh, and people have been under pressure, you know, inevitably our economy will slow. We think it will slow quite considerably. Uh, remains to be seen what those numbers say next Wednesday. But the Treasury forecast, the Treasury assumption is that we'll continue to grow, but quite weakly. Let's see Federal Treasurer Jim Chalmers there. And just finally, Peter Ryan, speaking of the economy, and in case people haven't looked at the calendar today, it's February the 29th because it's a leap year. And there's actually an economic impact. Tell me more. Well, Sally, this might surprise some people. And yes, an additional day compared to a common year. So 366 days instead of 365. Now, KPMG's chief economist, Dr Brendan Wren, has been thinking a lot about this. And he says this extra day, which happens to fall in a working week, means an extra day of growth for the economy or GDP, and he reckons this will add about $6.6 billion to growth. And he thinks this boost might be enough for GDP reading that we'll see in the first quarter of this year to come in a bit stronger, maybe even stop the economy from going backwards, but we won't see that confirmation until June. Thanks so much. That's the ABC Senior Business Correspondent, Peter Ryan. A new survey has found that young Australian women are using illicit drugs at the same rate as young men for the very first time. More than one in three women aged 18 to 24 has consumed an illicit drug over the past year, according to the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare's latest National Drug Strategy Household Survey. The survey also shows a worrying increase in young women who are indulging in binge drinking. Rachel Mealy reports. Young women on the streets of Sydney say the survey results confirm what they're seeing. I definitely see a lot of people my age and there is, has been a bit of a culture of binge drinking and that's kind of the thing to do instead of going out and having one or two. It's like kind of going out to get smashed. The Australian Institute of Health and Welfare's National Drug Strategy Household Survey is released every few years and gives a snapshot of our drug, tobacco, e-cigarette and alcohol usage. Overall, 18% of those surveyed had taken illegal drugs in the past 12 months. Since the last survey in 2019, cannabis and cocaine use has remained steady, while the use of hallucinogens and ketamine were both up. The latest data says women aged 18 to 24 have drawn level with young men as users of illicit drugs for the first time since records began. Dr Erin Laylor is the chief executive of the Alcohol and Drug Foundation. She says this group is also showing worrying trends in alcohol use. Look. 
COVID is, is a bit of a player in this. We're not sure what the impacts of COVID have had. We know that the alcohol industry has been marketing products um, and targeting young women, um, particularly over COVID. So we've seen ranges of drinks that are uh, particularly attractive to this age group. But I think it really is signalling a need to be cautious and to be looking out and understanding, doing more research to understand what's driving this change in, in young women. These young women weren't surprised by the results. I've seen a lot of stuff recently where women are talking about when I go out, I go out and I go hard. What does going hard look like? Does that mean binge drinking? Yeah, it's kind of like going beyond what you would normally do just because you don't do it often. I think it definitely stems from like potentially a need to fit in, uh, especially with that age range being around the beginning of uni and trying to find a social group, especially with the Australian culture. You know, binge drinking is something that's really normalised and I've definitely seen enough of where a casual night out can turn into a, a bit of a rager or, you know, it's a couple drinks turns into way too many. Dr Laylaw says across the population, the survey showed that 6.6 million Australians are drinking too much. It showed that about one in three people are using alcohol at risky levels, so that will put them at increased risk of injuries or ill health or diseases like cancer. The use of tobacco in Australia remains in decline, but e-cigarette use has tripled since 2019. Nearly 20% 20 of people aged over 14 reported having used an e-cigarette at least once. Dr Steph Kershaw is from the Matilda Centre for Research in Mental Health and Substance Abuse at the University of Sydney. She says Australians who need help with substance issues can look for resources online. So there are quite a lot of online evidence-based information and resources, uh, particularly portals like Cracks in the Ice, which is an online portal that contains evidence-based information about methamphetamine. The Alcohol Foundation also have an amazing number of resources about illicit drugs. But Dr Kershaw says there needs to be more focus on access to support services for Australians in regional areas. We do need to ensure that people have access to harm reduction initiatives as well as treatment or support services so that if or when they need it, they can access it. Uh, and that's really important for regional and rural areas as they are often undercated for. That's Dr Steph Kershaw there from the University of Sydney ending that report from Rachel Mealy and Anna Pikett. As the war in Gaza looks set to enter its fifth month, Israel has been drawing on the country's reserve units. For most Israelis, a period of military service is compulsory. Those who are eligible but refuse can be jailed. Nicole Johnston spoke with one young Israeli. 17-year-old Ido Elam is at school in Tel Aviv and says when it's his time to do compulsory military service, he will refuse to go, even if it means spending a few weeks in prison. One of his friends, 18-year-old Tal Mitnick, was jailed for 30 days and labelled a traitor for refusing to serve. He was the first Israeli conscientious objector to be imprisoned in this war in Gaza. Under Israeli law, young men spend two years and eight months in the military and women, two years. The number of Israelis who refuse to serve is tiny, but Ido Elam is adamant he won't do it. I don't want to serve in the Israeli military because... For years now, uh, decades, it has been conducting a brutal apartheid regime and occupation in the West Bank on Palestinians. Now I see the pictures in Gaza of the genocide, basically, of the Gazan people. It's really just heartbreaking, and I want to live in a country that does not 
kill tens of thousands of people in my name and in my security's name. Israel denies that there is an apartheid regime and that it's carrying out genocide. But how hard is it for you to maintain the position that you have in Israeli society right now? Extremely hard. Israeli society and specifically, you can say, the government and the media is turning a completely blind eye to what's happening in Gaza. Um, We don't see it in the news. If we do see it, it's because some international news reported on it. I'm lucky to have a very supporting family, but it's hard because even the friends, for example, that do support me, a lot of them are going to the army. So you see some moral uh, struggle within yourself. Society as a whole is treating me as a traitor. Strangers uh, yell at you when you protest, threaten to attack you, try to dox your address. Um, You get death threats online. You get people in school telling other people not to talk to you. You know, it's just like completely treated like a traitor. You are Israeli. Hamas carried out an attack on your country. What do you say to those Israelis who say to you that you should go into Gaza to defend your country, to fight Hamas and to do your service? People around me and me personally lost people on the 7th of October. All of us know people that died, people that fight in Gaza, people that are kidnapped. But the fact that we are against this war and the fact that many people that suffered on the 7th of October are against this war is because we are still hopeful for peace. We do not think that Hamas represents the whole of the Palestinian people. Um, We do not want to kill innocent children and women because Hamas did a terrorist attack on the 7th of October. Those two things do not connect for us. That's Ido Ellen there, an Israeli student. He was speaking to Nicole Johnston. Finally today, the Matildas have qualified for the Paris Olympics in style with a 10-0 thrashing of Uzbekistan. With many in the Australian squad nearing the end of their careers, the Paris Games could be the last chance for some silverware. Angus Randall reports. It took just 35 seconds for the Matildas to hit the scoreboard in Melbourne. And from there, the goals started to rain down. Three in the first eight minutes. Heyman is there again, and she's at the double. And this could get ugly for Uzbekistan. The final score against Uzbekistan was 10-0, the biggest win for the Matildas since they smashed Indonesia 18-0 two years ago and more than enough to qualify for the Paris Olympics. Veteran forward Michelle Heyman scored four goals in only her second match as a Matilda since 2018. The 35-year-old had been retired from international duties but returned in place of injured striker Sam Kerr. When I looked at Tony... After the third one, he was smiling and I think I even said, I've got five in me, like, hold on. (laughs) Former Matilda Tull Karp played for Australia in the Athens Olympics 20 years ago. She says it's remarkable to see Michelle Heyman's return to international football. I remember speaking to her during the course of her retirement and she wasn't quite done yet. To come back and five goals in two games at a time when you're really needed, she's going to put a lot of pressure on the selection team. There were good signs from the next generation of Matildas. Caitlin Torpy and Amy Sayer scored their first international goals as they pushed for Olympic selection. The qualifying squad of 23 will be whittled down to 18 by July. 
July. Coach Tony Gustafsson says that's a challenge for another day. I don't want to cut any one of these amazing players and human beings, so I park that for tonight and pick it up later in April or May. Former Matilda Amy Duggan is glad she's not in the coach's shoes. It's a nice headache to have as a coach. Obviously, the, the Sam Kerr injury is a massive blow, but to watch a player like Michelle Heyman come in to know that Emily Gilnick's still sitting on the sidelines somewhere that Courtney Vine could come back in. It's really created a bit of a conundrum for him out front. The Matildas came fourth in both the Tokyo Olympics and last year's Home World Cup. Midfielder Katrina Gorry says the Olympics could be the final chance for some of the older Matildas to take home some silverware. For most of us, it's probably, you know, could be our last major tournament. So I think, um, you know, to go out with a bang would be pretty amazing for all of us. Amy Duggan says this won't be a farewell tour. I don't think they'll be thinking about it like that. They're, they're filthy after getting fourth at the World Cup. They think they deserved a medal. And I think all of Australia thinks that too. And we would love to see that at the Olympics. Compared to the World Cup, Olympics football is very exclusive. Only 12 teams will make it to Paris. World Cup runners-up England and third-place getters Sweden are among those who failed to qualify. Former Matildas captain Melissa Barbieri says it gives Australia a real chance. Because there's less teams, there's more opportunity to win gold and come home with some actual silverware because once you're out of that group stage, you're right in the thick of it and you're that close to a medal. The Olympics kick off in July. Angus Randall. And that's all from the World Today team. Thanks for your company. I'm Sally Sarah. Stay safe. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. On a Sunday morning about three weeks ago, Ballarat woman Samantha Murphy set out for a run in dense bushland not far from her home, and she never came back. Police have now wound back their search for the missing mother. The community has rallied to try and find answers. Today, what happened to Samantha Murphy? Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app.